Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So this afternoon or this evening, there's a little football game between the Chiefs and the Eagles. I'm just curious, like, here's your chance to hoop and holler in church. We have any uh, Kansas City Chiefs fans out there? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I knew a few we could count. Any Eagles fans in the house? Okay, all right. There were more in first service, so, yeah. <clears throat> many of you are probably, like, Donna Kelsey, who is invested in the game, uh, but is not picking a favorite or is remaining neutral. If you don't know who Donna is, I didn't really either, uh, but she's become sort of famous. She has a son on both teams, apparently. So she's invested in the game, but uh, is remaining neutral. I think a lot of us are probably neutral. In fact, more people watching the game are really neutral about who wins, you know, don't really have a lot invested in the outcome of the game. There's lots of ways to be neutral about the Super Bowl. Uh, some of us are just really more interested in the nacho bar. That would be me uh, or whatever good food there can be. Maybe you're in it for the commercials. Uh, maybe you pretend to be interested because someone important to you is invested in the game. Any of those want to? OK, no, I won't make you admit that. Most of us are, are pretty neutral. And the truth is that that's okay about when we approach a a sporting event, it's fine to be neutral. But here's my sort of weird out of left field tie in to where I'm going to go this morning. Because you guys know I wouldn't muse about the Super Bowl unless there was a way to tie it in. That's just what we do as pastors. And the truth is that there, there is an ongoing conflict. There's a battle between two sides that is going on. And it's very real in our world. And the Bible talks about this Conflict, And it's a conflict between living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit. Living according to our natural default as human beings or instead being empowered by God's spirit to become God's people and to live differently in the world. And this is a real battle that is happening right now and every day in the world for the hearts and souls of men and women, boys and girls, every single person in this room, every single person watching online, there's a battle going on right now. And we can't see it. So it's easy to ignore. But we cannot miss it. Because if we're not engaged, if we just go into default mode, again, the default of the human heart and the human soul is away from God. And is to destroy ourselves. And to destroy our own community. That is the default. And so in the book of Galatians, Paul sets up this ongoing conflict in a number of ways. And as we're dipping into it this morning in the book of Galatians, we're continuing in this series on the Holy Spirit. We're talking about different roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. The different work of the Spirit. I've been getting a lot of feedback from you all. I'm glad that you're connecting with this. You're being challenged. That you're hearing new things here. And this morning we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit as the transformer. The transformer. And here's how I'm going to define that work. At least particularly as it relates to the book of Galatians. The Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus to us. Transforming our moral and spiritual character. Enabling us to live by the Spirit and not by 
the flesh. This is an ongoing process in our lives. You see, God in his infinite wisdom, he has designed salvation so that it unfolds across time. You've heard me say before, I would love it if it were just you got saved and that day and that moment you were good. You didn't sin anymore. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, it's just such a great idea. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. And that's not the way that we experience it. But with salvation, there's a definite beginning point. There's a moment when the process begins. This moment of conversion, of faith, and of repentance. A definite beginning point. There's also a definite end point that we call glorification. Right? That's this promise that one day, it's never going to happen this side of heaven, but one day we're going to get to heaven and our salvation is going to be complete. We're going to be fully like Jesus. We're going to fully reflect the image of God. We long for that day. But we're not there yet. In between these two moments, the beginning of the process and the end is this messy, ongoing work of sanctification. Sanctification. And that is whereby the the Holy Spirit is applying the work of Jesus to us so that over time we're actually becoming more like him. That's the work of sanctification. And that's the context in which this battle unfolds. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. The Bible uses many metaphors to describe this transformation. Here, Paul describes it as living by the flesh or living by the spirit. That's the battle. And as Paul sets up this section of the letter, he wants to remind them once again of what true freedom is. That's the goal is that we would become free. That there would be a freedom in Christ that comes. But, But unfortunately, this idea of freedom has gotten kind of confusing in our world because we think what it means to be free is to be able to do whatever you want to do. That's how the world, that's how we define it, apart from God showing us what it truly means. And so we think that the more choices that you have, the more free you are, because then you can pick out of the best options. But that's actually not the way it works. I don't know if you've ever tried to go shopping on Amazon. Now, hear me out. I'm not talking about going to Amazon to buy something that you know what you want. Amazon is great for that. Like You get it quick, you get a good price, it shows up at your door the next day. It's amazing the time we live in. It's wild. But Amazon is a terrible place to go shopping when you aren't sure exactly what you want. Because there are too many options. It actually crushes us. I think we're all overwhelmed by the number of choices. We're not finding freedom in that. And as the Bible defines freedom, it's, it's not how to live however you want. That's not true freedom, is, is living in whatever way you want. True freedom is found in becoming the people that God has called us to be. Specifically, verse 13, You were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. Right? Freedom is not do whatever you want to do. Freedom is found in serving one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, where the Lord is, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul wants us to understand what this freedom is. And he doesn't want them to turn to legalism, thinking that you can do enough to earn God's favor. You can't be saved by that. Legalism is not the route to good discipleship. But on the other end of the spectrum of legalism is what we might call libertinism. I don't know if you've heard this term before, but libertinism is the opposite. And libertinism says, you know what? I'm saved. God loves me. 
I have his favor, and so now I can live however I want. Right? I'm good. I'm free. It's the exact opposite of legalism, and neither of those options is true freedom. And I think in our day, libertinism might be actually the greater tendency is to just sort of say, okay, great. Like I'm in, I got my fire insurance plan, I'm I'm going to heaven, so now I can just live however I want. And scripture tells us no. True freedom expresses itself in loving service to God and others, not in self-satisfaction. That inward turning is not what we were created for. We were created to turn outward to God and to others and to love. This is the fulfillment of the law. And in fact, if we understand that we have everything that we need in Christ, it does dramatically change the way that we relate to other people. Because we, we approach relationships transactionally. What, what can I get out of this? We're, we're not always conscious of it. But if we really reflect, we're, we're selfish. We're always thinking, okay, I give, I give so much. That's why we get angry and frustrated. I give so much to this relationship. I'm not getting out of it what I'm putting into it. Ever have that thought? Today? This week? We think that way. Our hearts are naturally selfish. But if we understand that everything that we need, we have in Christ, then we're not going to people and trying to get from them what they actually can't give to us in the first place. It has to be found in Christ. And if our identity is in him, then we can approach relationships with what can I give? How can I serve rather than what can I get out of this? This is what sets us up to live in healthy community with one another. But there's a conflict that's happening. And so Paul goes on to define this conflict. So I say, verse 16, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you're not to do whatever you want. Libertinism. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So this conflict, this battle is going on in the spiritual realm. In verse 16, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So what do we mean by flesh here? We have to understand this term. Flesh doesn't just mean your physical body. Paul's not saying your physical body is bad and evil. That's actually an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Okay, Your body was created by God, and he, he created everything. And what did he say? He said it's good. Actually, he says it's very good. So we're not talking about just your physical body or even your physical desires here. We're talking about a distortion of those desires. We're talking about the system and pattern of thinking and behaving that is opposed to God's design for life. Tim Keller calls it the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. It's the part or the aspect of our hearts which is not yet renewed by the Spirit. That's the flesh. Okay, so not your desires, not your physical body, but those things which have been distorted. And in fact, this word desire here, it, it actually refers to an over-desire, a misdesire, a misaligned desire, a misapplied desire. So what's the nature of the conflict between flesh and spirit? It's a conflict of desires. Desires. See, we focus on thoughts, right? We're Western intellectuals. We focus on behavior. 
I think we miss this component of desire. You see, we're desiring creatures. We're not just thinking creatures. Yes, your thoughts matter. Yes, knowing the truth matters. But we all know there's things that we know what to do. We know what's true and right. And we don't do the right thing. Where's the missing piece? It's the desires. The desires of our heart. And the desires of the flesh. That part which runs away from God is in conflict with the desires of the spirit which runs toward God. So that's where we find ourselves in the midst of this conflict. The sinful human heart can take anything, even a very good thing, like a relationship or sex or food or drink or material possessions. Take any of those things and turn them against us by over-desiring or having desires which are outside of the confines which God has placed those things in. So there's an ongoing fight in our hearts and minds. It's between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. Now, Paul remains optimistic here. He says that if we will walk by the Spirit, we can be led by the Spirit, and we can see real and substantial and observable change. We can find victory over the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, we can live free from the curse of the law and instead become the people that God intended us to be. A change which will be evidenced by fruit. That is the fruit of the Spirit, which is the demonstration that the fruit of the, that, that the Spirit is at work in our life. But Paul paints two fundamentally different pictures here of what this looks like. He goes into detail to paint a picture of life led according to the flesh and then according to the Spirit. So we get the flesh first, starting in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. In this verse these verses give for us what's sometimes called a vice list. We have virtue lists in the Bible. We have vice lists, right? Good things, do these things, don't do these things. And the lists are never designed to be comprehensive. However, this is one of the longer ones. We get 15 specific attitudes or behaviors. And you'll notice he ends the long list by saying, and the like. In other words, and there's more. There's lots of ways to rebel and to distort And to live according to the flesh. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here unpacking the details of the sin. Because we want to focus on the good. We want to focus on what it means to live by the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit. But it's helpful to to acknowledge this list and to find ourselves within the list. So, I've taken the 15 and I've broken them down into four categories here. Um, and well, with some help from you know, Tim Keller's commentary, of course, and put them uh, in this list and, and, and just, just to kind of break it down for us. So we see a couple of examples here of sins that are sexual in nature. Right? There's lots of different ways to distort that. It's a good gift that God has given us. But if we think about it, any sex which is involved where you're unmarried, unnatural or uncontrolled. Unmarried, unnatural, uncontrolled. In our context, any sex that is outside of the covenant relationship of one man and one woman. This is how God has designed it. Everything outside of that is a distortion of that good gift. The second set is sins which involve a false substitution. The two specifics are idolatry and witchcraft. So idolatry is anything that tries to stand in the place of God. It's a substitution, a false substitution. And then witchcraft is a substitution for power. Not God's power, which helps produce good things, but a false evil power, which does evil things. 
So there's substitution sins. The third category is social sins. Now, in a way, we can say all sins are social because all sin affects other people, not just ourselves. We don't want to believe that lie. Well, this is just, just affecting me. No, all sins affect other people. But we get four specific attitudes and four specific outcomes. The attitudes are selfish ambition, envy, jealousy, and hatred. And they result in the four outcomes. Discord, fits of rage, dissensions, and factions. We don't have any of that in our world today, do we? And the final category is sins involving abusing substances. He lists specifically drunkenness and orgies, which was likely wild partying involving excessive use of alcohol and other mind-altering substances. Substances. So, again, we, we, we have these lists. We need to know them. But, but Paul says, look, they're obvious to us. The sins of the flesh are obvious. I don't need to unpack them for you. You know these things. You participate in these things. They come natural to you, actually. But the other reason I don't want to focus too much here is because I don't want to preach just behavior modification, which is just stop doing those things. Because sometimes the pattern of sin is that we focus so much on the sin and we just try to stop doing it, which is, which is helpful. That's part of the process. But if our hearts are not transformed, we're just going to keep coming back to those things. So we have to go beyond just stopping doing those things and we have to have our heart turned towards something else because, again, we're desiring creatures. So if we're desiring those things, part of the solution is to desire something better. Amen? You can share for the chiefs and the eagles, but you can say amen to God's word. Amen? <laughs> so we turn from these things and instead we live by the spirit and the fruit is the evidence of this transforming work in our life so let's define the fruit here i am going to take just a few minutes to give a brief definition for each of these and let me just acknowledge partway through this sermon that if you're a detailed note taker you've already lost me okay i know i've been moving really fast here and i'm going to keep moving fast because there's a lot of ground to cover so if if you're one of those detailed note takers and you um you can't keep up with with the pace this morning just email me i'd love to send you my whole manuscript really it's true anytime but um be glad to send it to you if, because i know i'm covering a lot of space here so the, the top of the list is love and it's appropriate. Love is the defining mark of a new life in Christ. It's God's shape for our lives. It's the crowning virtue. In many ways, it encompasses them all. And to love someone is to see them as God sees them. Again, this is one of those areas that we, we have a distorted view of love. Because love now today, what that means in many contexts, is just to accept someone and all their behaviors and all their attitudes and just say, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all fine. That's love. But it's not really love. It's actually not loving to say to someone that their destructive pattern and behavior is okay. That's not loving. That's not God's kind of love, and it's not the way he created us to love. And so we can disagree with people. We can grieve behaviors and patterns in their life and still love them. To love them is to see them as God sees them and to want God's best for their life, not their idea of how they want to live. To love them is to want God's best for them. Second on the list is joy. And joy is an inner satisfaction and gladness. It's not bound by circumstances. It's different from happiness. You don't have to be happy all the time. 
But joy is something that we can have even in the midst of hard things. It comes from having confidence in God and his good plans and his purposes. It's an inner satisfaction and gladness. Peace is a state of wholeness. It's really the New Testament idea is building on the Old Testament idea of shalom, which is wholeness. It's not peace just as in the absence of conflict, but it is being a whole person. It's that feeling that it is well with my soul. That is peace. You see, we don't always have peace. There's chaos going on in the world around us. And we don't always have that circumstantial peace. But the people of God have a wellness and have a wholeness to their lives and a substance to their lives because of the work of Jesus, because he has given us peace with God, and therefore we can live at peace with our neighbors. Not always agreeing with them, but we can be at peace with them. Forbearance or patience is an active endurance of opposition or difficult circumstances. It's not a passive resignation. It's not saying, well, it just, it is what it is, right? That's one of our favorite things to say. It is what it is. That's not the sense of forbearance or patience here. But it's suffering well. It's knowing that even in the midst of hard things, we can trust God. I think in our world today, we we live with a lot of comfort. And I enjoy those comforts as well. And I'm glad for that. I I don't wish discomfort for you. But I think sometimes because of how comfortable our lives are, in our context, we struggle to suffer well. But I've also seen incredible testimonies of people in this church, people that I look out right now and I see and I know you and I know some of your stories and I know that you're a person who's going through hard things, but you have a patience, a forbearance, a God-given gift to go through those things in such a way that it gives God great glory. A Christian who can patiently endure hard things is an incredible testimony to the world kindness kindness is steadfast mercy it's driven by love it's based on again the mercy of god that has been given to us and therefore if god has been merciful to us we can be merciful to others and often i find that christians show the least amount of mercy to the people that we actually should be showing the most amount of mercy to we're people who give away the mercy of god because we have been given much Goodness and faithfulness, they're both terms that refer to moral excellence or right living. Gentleness is, is a power expressed in humility, or meekness is, is the, the old language there. Meekness, it's not being passive, it's not getting run over, but it is a gentle and humble strength. And then finally, self-control. It's discipline, it's surrender. At the end of the day, there is a discipline in, in walking the Christian walk. You know, at the beginning of the year, so many people, they have goals, they have New Year's resolutions, but they have no self-discipline. You can make the best goals in the world, you can have great aspirations, but there's certain things that they just take work. And it's a grace-filled work in the Christian life. Here's what we're telling you in this series, you have the Holy Spirit who is there, who is helping you. But you have to have discipline to grow in these things. You have to give yourself over, you have to surrender to this work that God is doing in us and through us, we are challenged, we are told to give ourselves over to this process, to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit in our life. And so when we see the list here of this fruit, the natural question is, how do I get more of this? How do I have more fruit? Right? How do I have a more fruitful life? And that's a helpful question, but I wonder if the even better question underlying that is, What does it mean to live by the Spirit? Because when we live by the Spirit, 
the evidence of that will be the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we can get kind of caught up on individual attributes. We'll sort of rank ourselves like, well, I'm really good at love and, you know, not so good at patience and better at this. And, you know, and we, we can kind of get in this comparison game. And it is helpful to understand each of these attributes individually, but they're really given to us as a collection, even more powerfully. And the collection, you want to see the fruit collectively of the Spirit in your life, then you need to be filled by the Spirit. So how can we live by the Spirit? Well, the first step here, verse 24, it says, those who belong to Jesus Christ. The gift of the Spirit is given to those who are in Jesus Christ. So if you're not in Christ, if you've not surrendered, you've not placed your faith alone in Christ alone, then you haven't received that gift yet of the Holy Spirit. That's what God's word says. I'm not not trying to be mean or hold out something from you. That's just the reality. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, God still loves you. And, And you get to experience his common grace, but you don't get the special grace of the Holy Spirit until you surrender your heart and your life by faith and you repent and turn away from your sins and you turn to Christ. And the beautiful blessing of that reality, those who belong to Christ, is that they're putting, they're they're putting to death the sinful nature. They're being crucified and they're living by the Spirit, right? It's not I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. Just sang that song last week of Galatians 2.20. That's the process, but it begins by belonging to Jesus Christ. That's the first step. And so if you haven't taken that step, then I encourage you, if God is prompting you, come and talk to me, talk to one of the pastors, talk to any of our staff. Or if, if you're, if you want to talk to somebody about that right after service and respond, we have prayer ministers available in our library directly after every service. And they'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Being filled with the Spirit and living by the Spirit begins by belonging to Christ. Second, it says they have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. How do you crucify the flesh? You resist the devil. Again, the devil is real. We have a real enemy who seeks to to kill and to steal and to destroy our lives and distort the truth of God. How do we resist the devil? Well, there's really two main ways. You can fight or you can flee. They're both good options, right? How did Jesus fight the lies of the enemy? He knew the truth and he quoted scripture. He applied scripture in real time in his life. That was how he resisted the lies of the enemy. We can do the same. We can fight But another really good option is to flee. You find yourself in a situation where you're being tempted towards sin, get out of that situation. Or even better than that, proactively know yourself and don't put yourself in situations where you're going to fail. Fight or flee. That's how we resist the devil. We know the word, we apply the word, we believe the word, but we also can run. We find a way out. This idea of crucifying the flesh also in its passions and desires, it just reminds me of this reality that you think about the spiral of sin, that, that when you sin, you turn away from God. And if you continue in the next time, you keep going down that path. The further you go down that path, the harder it is from our perspective at times to get back on the right path. Okay, now hear me out. God is not any less loving or gracious or kind. And from his perspective... I don't think it's any harder, but I'm saying from our perspective, and when you look at human psychology, we understand that, that, that there's momentum 
That's how addictions are formed, right? We, we pursue something, we desire it, and then we give in and we think we'll satisfy that desire, but no, then we need more. So we go further down the path and we spiral away. And so the quicker that we're able to turn back to repent and turn back to the right path, the better things will go. Same is true. If, if we feed the desire to live by the Spirit, we get momentum there. And we begin building patterns of walking by the Spirit because he goes on to say, keep in step with the Spirit. This image implies steady faithfulness over time, every day, waking up and saying, God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit today? Would you help me to keep in step with your Spirit? Would you help me to live in such a way that it will bring me true life and to not believe the lie that whatever it is that's over here and the desires of the flesh are actually going to be satisfying? Help me to believe that is not true and that walking according to your Spirit is actually the best way to live. You see, the desires... If to pray, God, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you change my desire? Would you give me the desire to walk according to your spirit? Would you help me actually take steps to walk according to your spirit? Eugene Peterson captured it nicely with a phrase that he turned into a book. It's called a long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. A long obedience in the same direction. That's what it means. To keep in step with the Spirit. To walk according to the Spirit. To each day, to keep taking those steps. And when we realize we've gotten off path, we go back quickly. Right? I just, I just, just a moment, I thought of that metaphor of hiking. And if you've ever gotten off path, or maybe you didn't even realize you got off path in hiking, the quicker you realize, the better chances are you can retrace your steps and get on the right path. Because sometimes you get on the wrong path and you end up getting in some tricky situations. Been there, done that. When you realize you're off path, turn around and go the other way and find your way back to the right path because there's a reason people who've gone before you have blazed that trail. Keep in step with the Spirit. And then Paul concludes this section as if he hasn't given us enough details in in a few paragraphs. He concludes with a specific behavior that is driven by the flesh, and that is conceit. And conceit is tricky because it can result in provoking aggressively or envying passively. And it's all born out of a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor, the desire to prove ourselves, which results in competitive living. And we were not designed to be in competition with one another. We were designed to find our everything in Christ. That is what unifies us and brings us together as a community. And so when we live for ourselves, we live according to the flesh. It destroys the very community that we need so desperately. And so here's the truth. I need to walk by the Spirit. I need to keep in step with the Spirit. But I need you to as well. Because I need this community to walk and follow Jesus. And when we live according to the flesh, we destroy and we break down the community that God created for us. And so we need this individually, but we need this together. We want to be a Spirit-filled group of people. Because there is great power in that. Would you join me as we pray about these things? Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful and kind. That you do not treat us as our sins deserve. But God, help us not to see your grace as a license to, to live however we want. But God, give us the desire to want to follow you and to walk in your ways. 
God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. Every, every single person in this room is struggling with sins of the flesh. Things that they're desiring or over-desiring. Things that they have distorted desire of. And I pray, God, that you would help them. You would set them free by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, open their eyes to see those things and to see that they're not truly life-giving. And God, I pray that you would, you would break those things, break the bondage of living for self. God, free us up to loving and grace-filled service of you and service of those around us. God, give us a confidence in who we are in you. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us to keep in step with your spirit each and every day as we continue to walk towards you, with you, with your spirit inside of us. What a beautiful mystery. May we, may we understand this reality. and May it change our lives for your glory and for our good. Amen.